<clears throat> I wonder if, if somehow, if we just had magically no inhibition at all, if we had not a care in the world, and if we went around and were able to just blurt out how, how we feel we are doing in our relationship with God right now, I wonder what we would say. Exactly what faith is like for each one of us right now. So there are, there are the ups and downs of normal kind of daily life. So even last night, my spirit was dragging. Like I needed to hear Sam say that Jesus is the friend of sinners again. I needed to take the bread and the wine. And it was one of those times taking communion where you just hope it works. Today, I feel totally different. It's, it's been a very different day. I've been encouraged in, in my faith and in my spirit. Those are kind of the normal ups and downs of, of daily life and faith. But I wonder what the water table, kind of the, the baseline of, of each of our faiths is right now. And the reason I wonder about that is because this last year has been an absolute ringer for faith. There's no need to repeat everything that's gone on this past year in our world, our country, in this church. But for some of us, the suffering of it all may just be too much. And our faith is hanging on by a thread. For others, the, sh- the sheer amount of noise that we heard this past year in the political world, like in the news, on Facebook, the arguments with friends, the arguments with family, the divisiveness has made this giant sort of cloud in our vision. And, and like the noise, especially if, as Christians have responded in a hundred different ways to all these different issues, some of them very good and wise, some of them not very good at all and very unwise and unfaithful. And all of that noise, the thought of connecting directly with God becomes hard to imagine. And maybe even if we're totally honest, is something we're not really sure we want. Who is this God? Wherever you are on the spectrum, whether, whether you are struggling or whether you are in a place of strength in your faith, what we need is to see God again. Sam reminded us yesterday that we've got to come to the cross every single day because the day's problems are enough to merit being needy before Jesus every evening. And so this evening, I want us to turn to the cross. The cross is the place where human beings can look and see the one who created them. Isn't that amazing? And believe again. And by believing, have life in his name. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what we're going to do tonight. And so I want to ask tonight, what does the cross show us about God? What does Jesus from the cross show us about God? And it's, it's an impossible number of things. It's an incredible number of things. We're just going to look at three this evening. First, the cross shows us that God shines in the darkness. From the cross, Jesus shows us that God shines in the darkness. So John has been getting us ready for this all throughout his gospel, right? Every time John talks about light, and every time he's talked about glory, he is pointing us to the place of the cross. So John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
or John 12, 27. This may be the clearest point of it. Jesus' crucifixion is imminent, and he says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice comes from heaven and says, I have glorified it. It's the Father saying to Jesus, I've glorified my name in you already. And I will glorify it again in the cross. And later in that chapter, Jesus says to a crowd, I have come into this world as light. That whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. But how is Jesus on the cross light? How is he the glory of God shining brightly? It's because he is utterly different than the darkness. As light is different from dark, so is Jesus different from the darkness of this world. To a world that is embroiled in violence and coercion and everybody saying that the other side is a bunch of morally bankrupt fools, Jesus shines. In that darkness, Jesus shines. It's on the cross that God is willing to meet all the cynicism and chaos and cruelty and justice of this world. And he's, he's willing to meet it by bearing it on his shoulders and drinking wrath to the dregs until there is nothing left. He shines because he doesn't play by the rules of darkness. Jesus tells Pilate in our passage in his trial, my kingdom is not, of this, not from this world. And he's right. It's of a whole different sort. It's a slow-growing kingdom, but of, of unstoppable force, often overlooked, just as a lot of people, when Jesus was on the cross, just walked by, because it was right outside of Jerusalem. It was a busy day in the city that day, and a lot of folks just walked right past him, not knowing that the sins of the world were being taken away right in front of them. This is how God works. This is the way that he shines in the darkness. So Callie and I were watching one of these building renovation shows the other night. In this, in this particular building, there was this beautiful brickwork that was done in, in these kind of like circles on the outside of the building. And there's this gorgeous stonework that sort of adorned that. But it, it was one of the big problems with the building because they found that there was this little plant growing behind the brick that was displacing all of it. And so they had to pull it all out and clean all that out and like basically rebuild the wall. Now, my one-year-old son can crush a plant in our front garden. But that same little garden plant can displace a solid brick wall. How does the plant outmuscle solid brick well laid? It does it, I can I don't know exactly how, but I can tell you it does it behind the scenes. Quiet, overlooked. That's the way Jesus is working on the cross. To the naked eye, the cross just looks like darkness is winning. But behind that, unveiled, the light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There is no darker place than the cross, an innocent man getting the death penalty in a way that was meant to, dis- to shame and degrade And yet, that was the place of God's light and glory. So why do we need this right now? Why do we need to see God shining brightly in the darkness from the cross? It's because we need to remember that in all the darkness, whether it's the suffering of this year, or whether it's a faith that is ebbing away, 
or whatever places of darkness in your life that you would tremble to name. Jesus is there in your darkness and in my darkness. He is there. It's easy to get overwhelmed by the dark and forget that God's at work and that he's at work in this way, humble, hidden, often despised, but unstoppable. The darkness will not overcome this light. The cross put on display for the whole world to see the name of God. God has a name. It's the same one he spoke to Moses so many thousand years ago. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. On the cross, we see the name in all of its glory. And that's just the first thing that Jesus shows us on the cross, that God shines in the darkness. But second, second, God, the cross shows us that God fulfills every promise. The cross specifically shows us that God fulfills every single promise he has made. The crux of the whole story we read tonight is centered on three little verses and on the word finished or fulfilled. And so I'm just going to read it again. If you want to follow along, it's chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill or finish, same word, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a, put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, to fulfill, to finish the scripture, and then Jesus' last word, it is finished, which is actually in, in the Greek just one word, finished. It's what you would write on a bill after it's been paid, to telestai, finished. And what has Jesus finished? Jesus has finished the outstanding bill of all the awful things that this world has produced. He's paid it in full. So Psalm, 25, Psalm 75 talks about this cup that is in God's hand. It's the same cup that Jesus references when he tells Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father's given me? It's that cup. Psalm 75, 8 says this, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But then the shocking truth. Bishop Leslie Newbegin put it better than I could, ever could, so I'm just gonna read it. In the strange mercy of God, the cup of God's righteous wrath against the sin of the world was given into the hands, not of his enemies, but of his beloved son. And he will drink it down to the dregs until the moment when, when I thirst gives place to it is finished. And Jesus doesn't just pay off the debt of sin, the bill. He actually fulfills the entire scripture. You see, when the gospel writers say something happened in the gospel to fulfill the scripture or thus was the scripture fulfilled, they're not just picking out kind of random verses and, and thinking, oh, this, this kind of sounds like something that happened in the life of Jesus, so that must show that Jesus really is the promised one. What they're doing is they're picking out verses from all over the scripture, especially 
like touchstone ones that, that really press in to what God is doing in the world and especially what God will do on that great day when he brings the Messiah. John, the gospel writers, they, they take from the law here, the prophets there, the Psalms there to point out that all of them are moving to Jesus. All these tributaries in the Old Testament are moving into that great river that is Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills every scripture. He fulfills every promise that God has made to take care of this world and to not abandon it. So it's spring. Um, Virginia has forgotten that it's spring for two days, but it will come back, so I'm told. Um, We're really excited in our garden about this one plant called a red-hot poker. Um, It doesn't look like much right now. It looks like something that you could rip out of the ground and not really feel bad about at all. Um, But the deal is it needs to be finished. It needs to be fulfilled. In a few months, it's going to be this shoot of bright red flower that's going to be the glory of our entire garden. That's the picture of Jesus fulfilling the scripture. All of God's promises flowering, blossoming in a more beautiful way than anyone could have ever imagined or expected or hoped for. Jesus fulfills. Like Paul said in 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So why do we need this right now? Why do we need to see that God, Jesus from the cross, fulfills every promise? Well, we need something to help us navigate this world, this confusing time. We need hope. And the strange thing about Christians is that they look backwards for hope. They look back to to gather the fuel for hope to push on to the future. It's way more fashionable to look back at history and scoff and to barrel forward and say, we're going to make enough technological and social advances to arrive at our destination on our own. But that's wrong. Past behavior is the best indicator of future action. And human beings are not going to change. Something is wrong. And God has dealt with that. So when your faith is in the fog, you need something to tether onto, to get your bearings. And so we look back at the cross. The cross is it. And we remember that God is surprising in his goodness. He fools us at every turn with how good he really is to sinners and to this broken world. And the evidence is before us tonight. It's the cross. It fooled everyone. There are more surprises to come. There's more joy to come. But the way is through the cross. Do you need to see God again? Do you want to see him afresh? See him shining in the darkness. See him fulfilling from the cross every good promise that God ever made. But don't miss this last one for anything. Because at the end of the day, the cross shows us that God loves us to the uttermost. We cannot plumb the depths of God's love. We can never reach the heights. We can never outrun it. And all the wreckage of the world and all the garbage of our own hearts that threatens to obscure even the littlest vision that we have of God. And all of that, do not let yourself believe that God's ferociously dedicated love for you and for this world will not triumph over everything. 
I mean, time totally fails us to talk about all the things that Jesus did from the cross. We haven't even really touched on the Passover lamb or the kingly sign that's above his head. There's so much, and it's impossible to hold all of these different strains in our head together. All we can do is kind of gather it in and sit in awe and remember that behind all of those things that he is doing is the question, why? Why did he do it? I want to give you something from Peter Lightheart. And as I read this, I want you to ask, why? Why did he do it? said this, after a worshiper lays his hands on a sacrificial animal, he slaughters it. After the soldiers lay their hands on Jesus, they slaughter him and pour out his blood. It's a multifaceted butchering. They tear Jesus from his companions. They bring false witnesses whose lying tongues carve him with slanders. They mock his claim to be king of the Jews. They flay his back with whips. They press thorns into his head. They pierce his hands and feet with nails. And the temple worshipers strip the skin from sacrificial animals. Soldiers strip Jesus naked and hang him to suffocate in full public view. His blood oozes from his body. His breath fails. A soldier pierces his side with a spear. By the middle of a dark Friday afternoon, Jesus is a carcass on a wooden stake. A human being being nailed to a piece of wood. That is all the grotesqueness of our world and of my heart and of your heart in one place. Why would Jesus go there? For God so loved the world. That's why. As one paraphrase of Romans 8.1 put it, he who did nothing wrong was condemned for everything so that we who have done everything wrong would be condemned for nothing. He wanted that for us. It's his love that has him standing in between the accused, in between his arresters and his disciples, saying, let these men go. It's his love that has him like a lamb, silent before his shearers. His love that restores the denying Peter. Think of all the little human stories that are all in the Gospel of John. Jesus sitting down with his disciples and talking with them on the night of his, of his crucifixion so that their hearts would not be troubled, even though all the awful things of this world were about to descend upon him. Think about John tenderly leaning back on Jesus at the Last Supper. Think about Jesus taking care of his mom and his beloved disciple, even from the, his agony on the cross. All of those things, all of those things are there to show us that Jesus loves flesh and blood people. He loves you sitting in this room. And he loves me just like he loved those people that were there with him personally. He loves us personally. He loves us closely. The cross shows us to what extremes the love of God brought him. He saw the horror of it and he didn't turn his face away. Why? Because his death was going to be life-giving for us. And not just as a rescue from death, but to give us every good thing. Eternal life. Deep, ever-increasing, 
never-ending life. Jesus said in John 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I lay down my life. In some unfathomable way, for us to have that was worth it to God. He looked on us and he had pity. You were worth it. I was worth it. In the presence of this, we can only sit in silence and in awe. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Amen.